You are listening to a sermon from Covenant Presbyterian, a CREC church in Cochrane, Alberta. We invite you to visit our website at covenantpresbyterian.ca or contact us via email at covenantcochrane at gmail.com. We pray that you are blessed by the message. When Eli, Zadok, the son of Meshezebel, repaired, and next to them, Zadok, the son of Biana, repaired, and next to them, the Tekoyites repaired, but their nobles would not stoop to serve their Lord. Joida, the son of Peziah, and Meshulam, the son of Besodiah, repaired the gate of Yeshanah. They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And next to them repaired Melatiah, the Gibeonite, and Jadon, the Maranathite, the men of Gibeon, and Mezpah, the seat of the governor of the province beyond the river. Next to them, Uziel, the son of Heraniah, goldsmiths, repaired. Next to him, Hananiah, one of the perfumers, repaired, and they restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. Next to them, Rephiah, the son of Hur, repaired the district of Jerusalem, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, repaired. Next to them, Jediah, the son of Heremeth, repaired opposite his house. And next to him, Hattush, the son of Hashabniah, repaired. Malachiah, the son of Haram, and Hashab, the son of Pahath uh, <clears throat> Moab, repaired another section in the Tower of the Ovens. Next to him, Shalom, the son of Haluesh, ruler of the half district of Jerusalem, repaired he and his daughters. Hanan and the inhabitants of Zenoah repaired the valley gate. They rebuilt it and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars and repaired a thousand cubits of the wall as far as the dung gate. Malchiah, the son of Rechab, ruler of the district of Beth Hakaram, repaired the dung gate. He rebuilt it and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And Shalom, the son of Kul Hezeth, ruler of the district of Mizpah, repaired the fountain gate. He rebuilt it and covered it and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And he built the wall of the pool of Shelah, the of the king's garden, as far as of the stairs that go down to the city of David. After him, Nehemiah, the son of Azbuk, ruler of half the district of Bethzur, repaired to a point opposite of the tombs of David, as far as the artificial pool, as far as the house of the mighty men. After him, the Levites repaired. Rahum, the son of Benai, next to him, Hashbaliah, ruler of the district of Kela, repaired for his district. After him, their brothers repaired. Bavi, the son of Henadad, ruler of the district of Kela. Next to him, Ezer, the son of Yeshua, ruler of Mizpah, repaired another section, opposite the ascent to the armory at the buttress. After him, Baruch, the son of Zebai, repaired another section from the buttress to the door of the house of Eliashib, the high priest. After him, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, the son of Hakuz repaired another section from the door of the house of Eliashib to the house to the end of the house of Eliashib. After him, the priests and the men of the surrounding area repaired. After them, Benjamin and Hasab repaired opposite their house. After them, Azariah, the son of Mezaniah, and Ananiah repaired opposite of his house. After him, Benuni, the son of Hanadad, repaired another section from the house of Azariah to to the buttress and to the corner. Palal, the son of Uzziah, 
repaired opposite the buttress and the tower projecting from the upper house of the king to the court of the guard. After him, Pediah, the son of Perosh, and the temple servants living at Ophel repaired to a point opposite the water gate on the east and the projecting tower. After him, the Tekoyas repaired another section opposite the great projecting tower as far as the wall of Ophel. Above the horse gate, the priests repaired, each one opposite his own house, and after them, Zadok, the son of Immer, repaired opposite his own house. After him, Shemaiah, the son of Shechaniah, the keeper of the east gate, repaired. After him, Hananiah, the son of Shemaiah, and Hanam, the sixth son of Zalaf, repaired another section. After him, Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, opposite, repaired opposite of his chamber. After him, Malachiah, one of the goldsmiths, repaired as far as the house of the temple servants and the merchants opposite the muster gate and to the upper chamber of the corner. And between the upper chamber of the corner and the sheep gate, the goldsmiths and the merchants repaired. This is the word of the Lord. If you please have a seat as we open in prayer. Our good and gracious God, we thank you for your word and that we have the privilege of opening it before us. We ask that you'd help us to have eyes to see and ears to hear what you're telling us in your word this afternoon. We know that these are gifts that only you can give. And so we ask that you pour these good gifts upon us. May we be remade by our encountering of you in your word this afternoon, from the oldest to the youngest. And dear Lord, help me to preach this text as it ought to be preached. Amen. Welcome back to Nehemiah. We made it through that long section. This week, we're going to see the people get to work. Thus far, we have seen Nehemiah in repentance and prayer, recognizing that all we do must first start with repentance and prayer. Before we do anything, we must first humble ourselves before God, turning from our sin and recognizing who he is. This places our priorities in that right perspective by recognizing that life isn't about us. Life is about what God's purposes are. Then we see Nehemiah in prayer and planning. We will see that Nehemiah is a man for whom prayer is a mainstay. Prayer is a continual staple of his life. And so it should be with us. This includes both the big decisions, those big grand things, and also the small things. We see that Nehemiah spent three to five months praying pouring himself out before the Lord, saying, Oh Lord, help this to take place. And then also in the small moments, when he was right before the king, what does he do? His first response in a time of stress is prayer. And now we get to see how his prayers and planning work themselves out as the job moves forward. Now I realize our text this afternoon can have the appearance of reading a phone book. It's not often that you're more nervous for actually reading the text than you are for preaching the sermon. But this is one of those texts. Phone book, if anybody still has them. Or it would be something that we'd expect to see at the appendix, at the end of a history book. But since we know that all scriptures God breathed and profitable for us, that we may be complete and equipped for every good work. And work is exactly the theme of this chapter. Work is what this is all about. Now I know that work isn't always a popular subject isn't a popular subject in our culture today. After all, it's something that I'm sure many of us, from when we were children, we, or at least myself, 
came up with sometimes some rather ingenious ways for how to get out of doing our chores. Or something that, um, or the job we have to go to, or from the tasks around the house. This isn't something that we always look forward to, but work is an inescapable part of life. Work is always something that's gonna be with us. Why? Well, we have a God who, in the beginning, he created, he made. He is a God who, for six days, worked. It says on the seventh day, God rested from his work. Then, we're in that seven days, he created Adam, Adam and Eve, and he gave them work to do. He said, this is for you to do. Seven, six days, you're to work, and that seventh day, have a rest. And it's something that God also has for us. We can see both in the cultural mandate in Genesis when God tells his people to be fruitful and multiply to fill the earth, to the Great Commission, when God says, go into all the world, make disciples. And that work is something that continues on down. It's something for us to do today. And it, it's something that isn't just something to occupy our time, but it's something that has purpose. After all, the tagline, all of Christ for all of life, isn't just merely meant to be a slogan, but it's meant to be a way to live. In Colossians 3, we read, Whatever you do, work heartily, as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that the Lord will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Here we can see that God redefines our work. When we work for the Lord, we're serving the Lord in any good work that he has before us. Be that digging with a shovel, wiring a house, welding, ensuring that your drafters are on task, all the way down to changing the next diaper, making sure that there's clean clothes in the house, making sure that everyone's fed and there's clean dishes for everyone to eat off of. Now, this in many ways can seem ordinary, but one of the glorious gifts that the Reformation has returned to us, after all, this is Reformation Month, might as well kind of reflect on that, pick on some of the themes that we have gotten. One of the glorious gifts that we have gotten from the Reformation is the reaffirmation of the goodness of work. During what we would call the Middle Ages, there grew to be a pernicious divide between what people would call holy or sacred work. So this would be what the monks and the priests would do. They had the special task. It was, they were the ones who truly had the meaningful work. And meanwhile, the rest of us, we would have secular or vulgar work. That it was then the job of those who weren't monks or priests to support the monks and priests so they could do the important work because it was thought that only those involved in church work had anything of importance to do, while the rest of us simply toiled. Now, in unshackling the scriptures from its erroneous popish entanglements, Martin Luther recognized that every good and lawful work done to the glory of God was significant. It was done for the Lord, and therefore it had a meaning. Whether you're the butcher, the baker, or the candlestick maker, all the gifts that the Lord has given us, they were all meant to be in service of the kingdom. After all, in our text this afternoon, we're going to see a lot of people building, a lot of people doing stuff. But there's also people that are needed in support of that. After all, how long can you work if you don't have, if you don't have bakers to bake bread? So the big idea of the sermon today is that all your work matters because it is who you do it for and who you do it unto that matters. All too often we can think of our work as being menial or ordinary. 
as just a placeholder. And we wait for something important to happen. We wait for us to get to do that one big thing, that big task. But that's not how life works. All that we do is meant to be significant. So as we go through a passage this afternoon, we're going to look at it in three parts. First, we're going to see the leaders at work. Then we're going to see the people at work. And then we're going to meditate on what does this mean for us. So first, the leaders at work. In verse 1, we see, Then Elisha, the high priest, rose up with his brothers, the priests, and they built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and set its doors. They consecrated it as far as the Tower of the Hundred, as far as the Tower of Hananel. Now, it's important to note that Nehemiah starts his list with the high priest. He starts his list with who was one of the most important men in Jerusalem at the time, the high priest. And he's saying that that guy, he rolled up his sleeves and he got to work. He's showing that this, this task wasn't beyond anyone. This was a means by which those who were the highest in society and those who were the lowest were all able to come together. This is a job for everyone. And the good leaders set the example that are to be followed. Next, when it mentions the sheep gate, now this is through which the sheep were brought in to be sacrificed, and this was directly adjacent to the temple. Kind of explains why it wasn't the priests who ended up building this. That in doing so, and in consecrating, the priests were saying that their task wasn't just ordinary. That in consecrating the gate, in consecrating the work that they did, the normal construction work that they did, that this was significant. There's, this was, there's a holiness to this. The priests saw themselves as working for the Lord and desiring his blessing on their effort. This wasn't just an ordinary piece of civil engineering. Rather, this was truly a holy work. And here we see what the good example of leadership can be. And as we continue on through a passage, we see many times where rulers and governors or people who are responsible for different sections, how they are the ones who roll up their sleeves and led by example. They're the ones who got their hands dirty. But then we also see how there were rulers who didn't follow. In verse 5, we see, And next to them the Tekoyas repaired, but their nobles would not stoop to serve their lord. Now, the Tekoyites were among those who had been in the land before the exiles had returned. So the sudden influence and prestige of those who had returned, I'm sure kind of made them feel a little bit at odds, a little bit uncomfortable of saying, we were here all along, and now you guys are going to come in, and you guys think that you guys are the ones who are going to take over. So I'm sure there's a little bit of natural resentment. But also the location of Tekoya, it was southeast of Bethlehem, suggesting that this was an area that actually would have been under the influence of Geshem the Arab. If you remember back to Nehemiah chapter 2, he was one of the, the band of three, the three uh, scoundrels, who had set themselves up against the work the Lord was doing. Now, this brings up the question of what do we do with leaders who have compromised? After all, in our day, we can see how it seems like just about every single week we can see another leader who is kind of denying orthodoxy in some point or another. We can see how more and more people are stepping aside from faithfulness. Now, I think this is, this is an example for us to think about what does authority look like? What is the proper flow of authority? There are many times where we can have our own favorite teachers, our own favorite leaders that we can follow after, or we can recognize that at one point in time, God had done something great in someone's life. But we're not compelled, or we're not to follow after somebody if they're no longer following after the Lord faithfully. This is one of those times we can see the example 
that just because someone has a position of authority doesn't mean that they're worthy to be followed. Because the people of Tekoya, it mentions that they set themselves to the good work that God had before them. They had set themselves to the work that God had. Another example of this will be in Exodus, where we see the Hebrew midwives. They were commanded by Pharaoh to go kill all the baby boys, but they wouldn't do so, recognizing that they were responsible to a higher authority. Same thing in the life of Nehemiah. Same thing in the life of Daniel, where Nehemiah recognized that, yes, he was a servant of the king. He was the cupbearer, as it says in Nehemiah chapter 1. But he recognized he was under a high authority, that his ultimate allegiance was to God. So no matter what it is is asked of us, no matter what is before us, our ultimate commitment is to God. So anything that would get in the way of that, we're obligated, we're compelled to say no to. And I think this is an important lesson for us today to keep in mind. Next, we see the people at work. Here we see people from all classes. We see everybody from uh, the merchants to the goldsmiths to even um, the guards, how they all pitched in. Now, why is that? First of all, it's important for us to remember Jerusalem as a like the significance it had to the Old Testament people of God. Jerusalem was the place where they met with God. Jerusalem was the place where the temple was. This is where they went to meet with their God. This is where they went to offer their sacrifices. At the temple was the place where heaven and earth met in a sense. This is where they came to be with their God. So this had a great religious significance, but also more than that, it was also a sense of national pride. If you remember back to last week when, we, uh, when I read that quote from Winston Churchill, it wasn't that everything was going to be great, but there's a nobility to the task. There is a rightness to the task. And here we can see how the people responded to that, people from far and wide. We, we see people from um, all across Israel coming together. This was where, for them, this was their city. This was where the temple was. This was where their God was. This was, uh, as in Deuteronomy 12, it says, the place where God had chosen to make his name dwell. It was in this city, as much as the temple itself, that worship was offered and sacrifices made, sins atoned for, and the presence of God was to be found. It was so important that all people came together. No matter how far away they lived from Jerusalem, this was their city, as much as it was for those who permanently lived within its walls. What occurred in this enterprise was something that's rarely seen. It's something that we don't see often. Everybody from across society comes together, the merchants, security officials, city officials, the priests, the Levites, the temple servants, even the, uh, the women, the union, the guild members. They're all seen working in their respective sections. They're all seen coming together and gathering as one. The people of God, more or less, aren't standing firm. They're acting as one. Now, this is work that belonged to the people of God, and therefore, those who are not of the people of God were not called to participate within this. They were God's family, and therefore, separate from all the other peoples that were around them. Remember what Nehemiah said to Sambalat and Tobiah and Geshem in Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 20? Then I replied to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper and we, his servants, will rise and build. But you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. 
So what he's saying here, this is our work. This is the work of the people of God. Therefore, those who have no place in the people of God, they don't get to come and join in. I think this is also an important lesson for us when we think about how is it that the church is to operate? How is it that the church is to conduct itself? How often as Christians or um, Christian ministries do we see a slide into, well, this is what seems to be successful, not caring if that's also what's faithful. I think this is an example for us of, okay, what does it look like for Christians to conduct themselves within Christian mission? And as we have seen, this was how they came together as a people. So then what does this mean for us? Here the remarkable feature is that none of the people who came together, they weren't described as construction workers. They weren't seen as the skilled laborers. There's nobody in this list who was uh, said to be a carpenter or a stonemason. This was just how the people all came together. Everybody had this passion. Everybody had this burden to get this work done. So my question to you is, what passion has the Lord laid on your own hearts? Where is it where the Lord has said, or where, where do you feel that the Lord is calling you? Recognizing that even though there might not always be uh, the degrees behind the names, or there might not always be what in the world would look like success, or who we would necessarily pick. After all, these were people, it mentions that there was the perfumers and the goldsmiths coming together. Where's the Lord has given you a passion for? After all, it mentions that all these people, that they repaired quite often outside of their house, right in front of where they were. They had an invested interest in seeing the success of their task and seeing through with the quality of it. So once again, what is it the Lord is giving you a passion for? And then how is it that we can help you? I think uh, going back to the process, the, the doctrine of vocation, how is it that we as Christians are to live? Because after all, not everybody's a pastor, not everybody's a, um, a Bible scholar. Recognizing that all that you do is significant because the sovereignty of God allows for all of our work to be meaningful as he is the one who is ultimately in control and he's the one who will ultimately use our work. So therefore, no matter how insignificant something might seem to us, no matter how pointless it might seem uh, in our own eyes, nothing is insignificant in his hands as he's the one who's drawing all things to his intended ends. So this most times we can rest in the sovereignty of God, recognizing even though we might not understand why it is why we're at the job we're at, why it is that there's yet another sink full of dishes or another mountain of laundry to conquer, or another school lesson, or another book to read. We can recognize that God is behind it and God does have a purpose for it. We also need to recognize that as the church, our giftings are not something that's meant to be in competition with one another. Rather, they're all given to us to help us com uh, complete one another's tasks. For example, I know most of, most of you in here on a fairly... Uh, good personal level. I can say there are giftings that each and every single one of you has that others don't have. So in order for us to come together to do the work of the ministry, we need all of us to, to come help one another with our blind spots. 
And when we see uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 12 to 16, for just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we are baptized all into one body, Jews and Greeks, slave or free, and all are made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member but of many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body. That would not make it any less a part of the body. Or if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body. That would not make it any less part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members of his body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. In those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which is more presentable parts do not require. But God is so, but God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. This is to say that all the work that we do in our various fields that we either work in or specialize in, all that has a purpose. All that is meant to come together to help us build the kingdom. We also see in here that God sees their work. After all, this is recorded in the Bible. This isn't just a random accounting of some historical event. Rather, this is God remembering and honoring every single person that ended participating within this. So no matter where you are in life, God sees your work. God sees what you're doing, even in those times where you're frustrated, even in those times when you wonder why. So to bring back to, the, uh, to our vocations, have you thought of how it is that, how, that God has placed you where you're at? Have you considered how it is that God has blessed those around you by having you there? How it is that you can speak up how it is that you can uh, be a Christian in, the, in your workplace or help teach your children, help pass on the faith. Because after all, in Colossians 3, as we opened with, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that the Lord will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Is this something that we have taken seriously? Because after all, our Lord... He came, he saved us, but this isn't just for us to simply exist. This isn't just for us to simply move along or to think that there's nothing for us to do, to simply skate along into heaven. In Ephesians 2, it says that he has placed good works before us. Help us to uh, reflect upon that. And so, as we close, remember your work is significant. Your work matters. And that it doesn't matter necessarily all the things that you do, but it matters who you do it unto.
Therefore, let us close in prayer. Lord, we thank you for this text. We thank you that you have given us things to do in this life, that you have also equipped us, that you have also called us to the various tasks that we have before us. And so, dear Lord, may we take these things seriously. May we see them as having a a work for your kingdom. And even the times when we are, when we are prone to being discouraged at that one more task, that one more thing that we have to do. Dear Lord, help us to remember that it is all for you and for your glory. And it is in your name we pray. Amen.